Hey everyone, welcome to Detoxicity. Whether this is your first time checking this podcast out or you're a regular listener, I am glad you're here. I hope that you and yours are safe and healthy, and lately I have been forgetting to say my own name, which is Mike Joseph. I am the host and producer of this uh, podcast. Detoxicity is available on just about every podcast platform there is, and I hope that however you listen, you take a minute to subscribe and drop a rating and or a comment. If you feel the need to check me out on social media, you can go to facebook.com slash detoxpod, or you can follow me on Instagram at itsmikejoseph and on Twitter at tismikejoseph. The Twitter thing is always tenuous because I hate that platform, but it's good to have another uh, another place which to promote this podcast. If you have any marketing ideas, hit me up. Anyway, there's also a Detox Pod newsletter. You can find the link to sign up at tinyurl.com slash detoxpod. And I can be emailed at detoxpod at gmail.com. Feel free to drop a line. I want to hear from you. Make suggestions, provide constructive criticism, and please don't hesitate to reach out if you want to be on the podcast or you know somebody who'd be a good fit. So this is coming out um, off cycle because, well, because a couple of reasons. Um, this episode wound up being a little different than usual, uh, which is why I'm posting it separate from the regular rotation. It turns out that the interview subject for this episode is pretty much me. Um, so let me explain. Chris Calabrese is a counselor, uh, in training at Montclair State University. Uh, he has decided mental health is what he wants to do for a living. Um, when we initially hooked up to talk, We didn't really know where the conversation was going, and uh, this ended up being less an interview about him and more an interview with me, or uh, maybe more so a converse, more of a conversation where we're both equal partners in it, as opposed to me asking somebody to share their story. I share a lot more of mine. So uh, we end up talking about a few different things. Uh, Chris and I definitely come from different backgrounds. Um, We were raised differently, and um, we met in New York City. And it's just a conversation about how two people from different backgrounds can be brought up and how that shapes their worldview and how they can still find common ground. So anyway, I'm not going to blather on too much more. Check out this interview and... uh, Enjoy. Thanks. My name is Chris Calabrese. I am a counselor in training at Montclair State University, working toward my master's in clinical mental health counseling. I've probably been friends with Mike for about four or five years now. Six, four, five? Three. Something like that. No, over three. Three, three. yeah. Okay, okay, yeah. Three and um, change. Yes, we, we, work, we worked together for a while. And uh, yeah, Mike actually introduced me to or, you know, got me more involved in mental health and kind of introduced me to some deeper concepts that I hadn't learned about and kind of stoked some interest within me that ultimately led me to going to school. So I owe him a lot. You don't owe me uh, anything. (laughs) I I, I owe you for, you know, making me feel good about the shit that I do. (laughs) But yeah, Mike reached out to me some time ago, probably when when did you start this whole thing? I feel like it was probably about six or seven months ago that you reached out? Probably like in January you know, asking, asking for people to jump on, uh, this podcast. And I was a bit skittish at the time. I'll be honest, just because I had never done anything like this, but as you know, this year has been a big year for me and for many, I'm sure in terms of self-exploration and kind of, you know, exploring cultural identity and stuff like that. And, you know, 
I've just been thinking a lot about it. And the more I think about it, the more confidently I'm ready to talk about it. And the more I want to talk about it with people. So I reached out to Mike and I was like, let's, let's, let's do this. And here we are. <laughs> and here we are. <laughs> but yeah, I guess if it's okay with you, there was, there was a topic I wanted to talk about today. And it kind of has a lot to do with something I've been thinking about. The, I, I, I guess what I've been thinking about a lot recently is how the environment I grew up in kind of led me to the values that I, that I believe in and put weight into today. Like kind of how the place where I grew up and my family, my place in my family, the values that were within my family, within my community, you know, what it meant to be a man, what it meant to be a good person how those things kind of built over time and how they still affect me and how I've had to reckon with them and kind of evaluate them. And obviously we come from different backgrounds. We do. And, and I wanted to, you know, just talk with you about that. Yeah. I mean, we're, we're, (laughs) we're different in a lot of ways. I mean, we're, you know, there's a reasonable age difference. You know, we, we probably come from different economic backgrounds. I'm black, you're white. I'm queer, you're straight, like you're from the suburbs, I'm from Brooklyn. So it's just a lot of a lot of what people would consider opposites. For sure, for sure. So I think there's a lot to, a lot of ground to potentially cover in this conversation. Yeah, absolutely. So I guess, I guess a good place to start would just be, I know we just kind of brushed on it, but if you could give kind of like a, a summary or a synopsis, or if we could just talk about how how you grew up, where you grew up, where you spent time growing up, the people that were, you know, around you most, the people that kind of left the biggest mark on you, stuff sure. like that. I mean, that's a lot to, a lot of ground <laughs> yeah. to cover. Yeah, um, just talk about um, that for the next, like, two, three hours. Next three hours, yeah. <laughs> I, you know, I, I'll try to give you the short version. I was born in Brooklyn, in Bed-Stuy, to uh, be exact. I lived in Brooklyn until until I was eight, so between Bed-Stuy and East Flatbush. And I then lived in Michigan for a couple of years and then moved back to Brooklyn and lived in Brooklyn until I was almost 18 and uh, moved out on my own. And, you know, lived all over New York City, every borough except Staten Island. I've lived in New Jersey for a while. I lived in Boston for eight years. Now I've been back in Brooklyn for almost five. I grew up primarily raised by my maternal grandparents, my mom's mom and dad. My grandfather passed away when I was 16. So my last like year and a half was really kind of with my grandmother. I was raised, you know, the Michigan piece of it was I lived with my mom and my stepdad and my, my step-siblings or my half-siblings actually. And like the house that I grew up in for the most part wasn't like, you know, it wasn't mom, dad, kid, dog, cat. You know what I'm saying? Like it was me, my grandparents, my aunts and uncles until they reached a certain age and either went to college or moved out. My grandmother ran a daycare center and then she became a foster parent and then became, became an adoptive parent. So through my teen years, there were always like children in the house. And also we just had like a lot of, you know, boarders, I guess you would call them, just people who were sort of distant relatives that would come and stay with us for an indeterminate period of time, just taking up space. So it was always like, you know, you talk about the show Full House, this was a full motherfucking house. They, at any given time, they were, excuse me, at any given time, they were anywhere from like six to like 12 people in the house. Wow. So it was just, yeah, it was, it was a little bit circusy at some times, but uh, the house was always full. Like I was, 
the amount of time that I spent alone in that house growing up, you could probably put every time that I was alone in that house for the first however many years of my life and it wouldn't come up to a full day. Wow. Wow. Yeah. So, which I think is part of the reason why I, like I've lived completely by myself now for the past 15 years Mm -hmm. and I treasure my privacy and like living alone so much because I spent the first half of my life just sharing space with people. Sure. Do you feel like in that time, because there were so many people in and out of the house, there were so many people living there. Do you feel like you had time to, and you had space to express yourself and be you and kind of talk and just kind of have a space in, in all of that? Not really. I mean, the way that my folks, you know, acted really was there was a hierarchy. And if you were a kid, you had nothing to say pretty much. So it was just kind of like, do what we tell you to do and don't question it. That was Mm -hmm. it. Like I didn't, I didn't grow up questioning authority. I thought it was taboo to question authority. And we never really had any like substantial, particularly with my grandparents. I mean, I'm also the first born American in my entire family. So we never really had like substantial conversations about, you know, anything about emotions, about the world, about politics, about about anything. So it was just a very like, you're the kid, we're taking care of you, you do what we tell you to do. If we ask you to do something, do it, don't give me any lip. And that's kind of the end of the situation. For sure. How do you feel like that? This is kind of the question that I'm getting at. And I don't mean to, to be building towards something. But Mm -hmm. I guess I'm kind of trying to figure out how these things that because like this, you, you're choosing these things to tell me about 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 the way you grew up, and sure. which means that they mean something to you. And I want I want to know how you feel like these aspects of your life and the messages you were given by your your parents or, or the, your guardians, you know, your grandparents, the people that were living in the house. Um, like, what what did those messages make you believe about yourself or your place in 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 the world, essentially? I mean, that's kind of a loaded question because I feel like I got different messages from different people. Sure. I don't, I think that there are, there, there are valuable things that I was taught. I mean, I was definitely taught a work ethic and I think I have a, a greater than normal work ethic. And I think that's in a large part because my family was all immigrants. And in addition to being black, like coming from another country, you are well aware that you have to work three times harder to just get by. So there's that. I think I also have a strong work work ethic because of the, what am I trying to say here? Because of my surroundings, because of sort of the, the time period and the neighborhood I grew up in, which wasn't a great neighborhood. And it was, you know, the eighties and nineties. And it was a time when, you know, like the aspiration for me was always to like, get out of the house, get out of the neighborhood, have my own life, become something bigger than what I was seeing at home. So in that respect, I, I think that it was, you know, that, that, that part of my upbringing was good. On the flip side, I don't know that I was really taught how to, there are a lot of things that I think I, I wasn't taught how to really be like an individual. I wasn't taught a lot of self-confidence. I wasn't taught, you know, I wasn't really taught anything substantial about pro-blackness. 
I wasn't taught a lot of things I had to find out for myself. And I wasn't really taught how the real world worked. I'm interested because you brought up that you brought up that like earlier in your life, you learned quickly that, you know, because you're black, you have to work three times harder to, to achieve the things that, you know, white people have that white people achieve. Right. Um, And you also mentioned that you weren't necessarily taught about, you know, pro blackness or, or to feel, to feel good about that. And I, I just, I'm interested in like how you feel that that builds your racial identity, kind of how you thought of yourself as a black individual and how you think of yourself now as, as a black man. Like, I mean, there's definitely a difference. I mean, I, you know, I'm, I'm very proud of my blackness. I'm proud of my heritage. I, because of the way I grew up, I am also very aware of the fact that, that black people are not a monolith. You know, I'm not, you know, I don't have a connection necessarily, a direct connection to slavery. I can trace my lineage back four, five, six generations, you know, or at least half of my lineage because I don't know my dad. I could trace my lineage back five, six generations to the Dominican Republic. And, you know, the slave trade in America has nothing to do with my, with my direct heritage. It affects me because people that are not black assume that every black person comes from that heritage. But it, you know, me personally, like I grew up around people, my family is from the Caribbean. Most of the neighborhood I grew up in was people from the Caribbean. Most of the people I went to school with, you know, for elementary school and a time of junior high school when I was in New York were black people from the Caribbean. So it, it, it's just sort of a different, it just always kind of like put in my head that I was different. And, you know, my sexual orientation on top of that, it, it just sort of put me in a space where I didn't feel comfortable in any like uniform group of people. Well, what like uniform groups are you thinking about when you say like, that? If, you know, I'm not an American. So if you put me in a group of black Americans, I'm going to feel a little out of place. Mm. I'm a black man, but if you put me in a group of straight black men, I'm going to feel out of place because I'm queer. If you put me in a room full of queer black men, you know, then there's, a, you know, then there's some dissonance there. And it's just kind of like, unless I'm hanging out, and even if I am hanging out with other queer West Indian black men, like there's going to be some kind of dissonance somewhere. So it's not like I feel like I fold neatly into any group. Sure. It just, so there's just, for me, like always the feeling of, of, of being something of an outsider and also the feeling of, all right, these people are not like me just because we share the same skin color or because we're all the same sexual orientation or because we're all men. You know, there are lots of differences that kind of go beyond the surface. Sure. Your people are your people, regardless of what, you know, regardless of the nuances that you have and the nuances that they have. For sure. Yeah. Like you feel like the intersection of like the different parts of your, your identity are, are what make you unique. And that often is difficult in terms of, yeah, feeling like you're being put in a box with these different groups. Right. For sure. Right. Yeah. Cause everyone's experience is different. I mean, even, you know, I, people try to paint black folks or, you know, queer folks or even guys as some kind of monolith. And it's like, no, I mean, and at least in terms of black folks, I think the only thing all black folks have in common is that we're discriminated against. And that's a big 
commonality to have. Sure. That's what bonds us. That's what unites us. But it's the only thing. So you feel, do you, do you feel strongly connected to, to your more like ethnic identity, you know, of being from the Caribbean and, and that side of yourself? Somewhat. You know, there are people that I talk to, like I, I did an episode of this yesterday with a guy that I grew up with, you know, who, you know, his parents are Jamaican. He was born in the UK. And, you know, we grew up probably like five houses down from one another. And like, I, we clicked in really quickly. It is the familiarity, actually. It's the fact that, you know, we can talk in like a patois or a dialect and totally understand what the other person is saying. There's no need to explain. Sure. In addition to the fact that we, you know, we've known each other since, you know, I was a child and he was a teenager. So, uh, yes, I, 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 there's a level of comfort I feel when I'm around other black people that I don't necessarily feel around certain white people. There's a level of comfort that I feel around certain queer people that I don't feel necessarily around straight people. You know, there's a familiarity amongst men that I don't feel when I'm hanging around with primarily women. So it's, it's yes, there's definitely sort of a, a, a comfort and a familiarity when you're in a room of people that at least have those factors in common with you. Sure. It's so, it's so crazy to think about, to think about how, how much that, that intersectionality of, of all these areas of your identity, how they kind of make you feel in any given situation, because seriously, like where I come from, I was looking up statistics on it today, just for a paper I was writing. So it's fresh in my head. I'm from Wall Township, New Jersey, which is 95% white. You know, I grew up around all, all white people. I mean, I was counting on my hand. I think I had three or four teachers of color, you know, very, very few students of color, like very few classmates of color. It was, it was un, unreal thinking back on it, but how little, how little thinking about my own cultural identity mattered to me until I was actually probably until like three or four years ago when, when I moved to New York and, you know, it, I was raised to think that the, the, the incredibly white way that my community ran the like, you know, the way that everything was organized, um, those white values and that white way of life was just the normal way of life. Like I never thought that it was, this is like, this is a white town. This is just like a town. You know what I mean? This isn't a white community. It's just a community. And it was, it was, it, it has been a, a, like, you know, such an experience learning that that is not true at all. And that I wasn't, you know, like when you move to a place like New York and you learn that there is no one normal way to be, you know, I, I had the privilege of never having to think about my own race or, or really my own ethnicity or like developing, developing these identities for myself. So that, that's, that's mostly why I, why I wanted to talk to you about this and, you know, it's, yeah. 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 I mean, blackness is, it's not something that you cannot think about at any given time. For sure. It's always, even if, and I grew up in an all black, all black neighborhood, my elementary in my Michigan experience was something different, but in New York, my elementary school was all black in junior high school, except for one white kid, everybody was black or brown. And even in high school, and I went to I went to a high school out of my neighborhood. I went to a specialized high school for math and science. There were very few non-ethnic white kids. Most of the white kids were Jewish, 
And, you know, those that weren't were like Italian. Mm-hmm. And they identified more as Jewish or Italian or Greek than white. Like most of the white kids that I went to high school with were the children of immigrants. Sure. So they identified more with their ethnicity than they did with a race. Um, sure. So for me, the only generic white people that I encountered on a regular basis until I was almost 18 years old were teachers and doctors. Mm-hmm. And even most of my teachers and doctors were like, the white people were generally like uh, immigrants or, you know, the spawn of immigrants. So I spent the majority of, of, you know, my youth and my teenage years in an environment that was almost universally people of color. What do you feel like that? Like, what do you feel that taught you about you? Like, do, do you know what I mean when I ask that? Like, yeah, I mean, it taught me that people are people like there's shitty people and there's cool people. And it, you know, it definitely released me of some prejudices that maybe not maybe definitely some of my older relatives still have because I was around, I mean, once I got to high school, I was around people of color who were not black for certain. My high school was then and still is now majority Asian. So, you know, it just kind of, it gave me ways to interact with people on a peer-to-peer level that I had only previously had for the three years that I lived in Michigan. And even in Michigan, everybody, almost everybody was either black or white. And the black people there were primarily black American. So there weren't very many like Latinx people, no Asian people that I remember. There were a handful of Middle Eastern folks and that was kind of it. So yeah. I know you've lived a lot of places. Have you ever lived in a place or, or even, you know, been part of a system that was dominantly white? Yes. I lived in Watertown, Massachusetts for three years. Watertown, the last time I looked up the stats, Watertown is 93% white. Mm -hmm. And, you know, because of the nature of the work that I do, I'm, you know, when I go to shows, if I go to a metal show, not necessarily in New York, because, you know, people of color that listen to different types of music is pretty commonplace. Everything is commonplace in New York City. But I would go to a metal show in Boston and I would like literally scan the crowd for like anybody else of color in that crowd. So I've certainly been in spaces where I've been the only black person in that space. Yeah. And, you know, again, just like the the Watertown experience, I, you know, I used to go to a meetup for people in that, in that town. And I mean, at most at any given time, there would be maybe two other black people there. It was a very, very white neighborhood. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. I guess I'm just wondering like how, how, how your upbringing and, and the communities that you were raised in and brought up in, like then moving there, like what, uh, you know, how do you feel that like the communities you were raised in prepared you or, or didn't prepare you for living in, in a, in a community that was so, so different from where you were raised? Yeah. I mean, I don't know that they did prepare me. That was, I mean, the whole eight years I spent in Boston was really my first true experience living in a living in an area that was very, very, very primarily white. Sure. And I didn't, and you know, Boston gets a lot of crap for being a racist city. And it is, I personally never, I never had a violent confrontation with anybody on account of the color of my skin there. Sure. 
there was definitely like some, you know, you'd walk into a bar and get some strange motherfucking looks. And, you know, like people on the street would, you know, there's definitely like the look at you funny kind of thing. But, uh, you know, thankfully, I never had to like, I never got into a confrontation with anybody based on that. But it made me certainly more aware of the possibility of getting into a confrontation based on that. For sure. Absolutely. Yeah. And it just, you know, I, I don't know that I'd ever lived... I'd also never really lived in a place where I knew that the politics of some of the people that I was seeing on a regular basis did not match mine. For sure, um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, the place that I rented, my land, the couple that I rented the place from lived downstairs from me, and the the husband, in, you know, it was a heterosexual couple, the husband of the couple was an older, probably in his 60s, early 70s, uh, Armenian guy who was you know, pretty conservative. And, you know, we didn't discuss politics very often. And he was, you know, to be fair about it, very welcoming to me as a black person. And, you know, the first thing he said when I came to look at the apartment was, you know, look, I don't have any racial prejudices, you know, or anything like that. Like, I'm totally fine with you living in my place. But, you know, there was other stuff, political stuff that I felt very uncomfortable kind of living with him, Sure, you know, kind of being in that space. But again, like it was just kind of like we kept to ourselves and there was never any like direct confrontation about any of that stuff. So For sure, yeah. But yeah, I was certainly aware of, of, you know, I'm always aware of my blackness, but when no one around you looks like you do, you are acutely aware of, of your otherness. Like I've told people before, nothing makes you feel blacker than being in a room full of white people. Mm hmm that's interesting what you mentioned about the like political aspect of things, because I don't know. I feel like my, my whole adult life, I mean, while I was in college, Barack Obama was, was president, but you know, pretty much ever since then, since I graduated, we've had Trump. So it's like, it's, it's been, I feel like every political discussion in these last four years has been extremely emotional for, for a lot of people. And that's something I always think about Like, is this just like, is politics always so aware when you're an adult? Like, is it something you that like, is it always so, so present when you are an adult or is this just like, an? I mean, I know it's an exceptionally polarizing situation, yeah. but like, is this it's, like, <laughs> is this like going to be not. forever? You know what I mean? I, like, don't, I don't think so. Crazy. I think, well, I think things have changed. You know, when I turned 21, Clinton was still president mm-hmm. and I don't remember there being any particularly crazy differences in politics at the time until like, you know, the Lewinsky thing happened and he got impeached and all that stuff. But then when Bush became president, you know, there was sort of the rumbling of that division. And then after 9-11, shit got super polarizing. And I feel like, yeah, I feel like that polarization, you know, it started there and then the divide got worse when Obama was president. I think that was specifically along racial lines. Mm-hmm. And then when Trump became president, it just kind of broke into this very, very clear, like, polar opposite thing where you're either on one side mm-hmm. or you're on the other side, and there's nobody in the middle at all. I'm interested about what you said about 9-11, because I, I mean, I was, I was in first grade in 9-11 when 9-11 happened. Oh, my God. <laughs> wow. From what, like, from what I understood about it, 
it I, I almost imagined it as being like a politically unifying event because everyone was grieving together. But you said it was it was I extremely polarizing. In the, so in the immediate aftermath of it, everyone was so shell shocked, I think, that it did bring people together. But I think as I mean, really the follow-up to 9-11 was the war in the Middle East. Mm-hmm. And there was definitely a sense, you know, there was a conspiracy theory that Bush planned the 9-11 attacks to manufacture a war with Iraq to sort of settle the score from his dad in the first war in Iraq back in 1991 or 1990. So I think that, you know, that became sort of like a, a, a line divider, you know, between people who considered themselves conservative and people who considered themselves liberal. I think, you know, when Bush got elected again in 2004, that line grew wider, you know, just because the Democrats had, I mean, A, the Democrats had a shitty candidate and it just, it's, it's continually like grown wider. And I think not coincidentally, the fact that social media has become more and more of a presence in society and allows people, it, it democratizes the opinions of people. And I think that can be a good thing, but in the case of politics, in the case of anything, really, it allows, like, it allows the best and brightest to show, but it also allows the ugliest mm-hmm. parts of society mm-hmm. to show. And, you know, right now, I feel like, I feel like the ugliest parts of society, well, in 2016, I think the ugliest parts of society won. And I'm hopeful that in November that, you know, the same people will take it back. But as of right now, we have this crazy, crazy government and we're dealing with this fucking ridiculous virus and all this other shit. Mm-hmm. And I do think it's because, you know, it's due to a division that was sort of sown that, you know, has seeds that start decades ago. For sure. No, I, I totally agree. And I guess the reason why I was like kind of asking more about it is one of the major, I mean, I've, I've spent, I'm sure, I'm sure a lot of people have, but I've spent a lot of this year kind of just reflecting on myself, you know, between like the Black Lives Matter movements and between, you know, my counseling education and between a, a lot of sort of personal awakening that's happening and having more time to do so and stuff like that. There's just been so much self-reflection for me this year. And I, I've i kind of really been pushing myself to engage because so, so much of the community where I came from, that community of, of you know, 95% white that I, that I explained earlier so much of that community is conservative. You know, it's an upper middle class area. I never learned about white privilege growing up. The myth of meritocracy is so, so real. You know, people believe big time in the American dream. It's like, you know, if you just work hard enough, you can get, you, you know, where you want to be. So between really close friends, my like immediate family, my really close family members, it's been it's been a trip, like really trying to engage them in a way where I don't get emotional, they don't get emotional, we don't get defensive, because, you know, I, I don't want there to be bad feelings there, but I want to have these valuable conversations and, and present, like, an opportunity for some mutual understanding. I don't know. That's that's kind of where I've tried to take my place in terms of activism this sure. year. Sorry, no, go ahead. I don't want to cut you off. No, no, yeah, so that's that's why I was asking so much about how polarizing things were and are, because... I don't know. It, it's, 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 that has been really hard for me. That's been something that's really hard. That's been, that's been a difficult thing to reckon with. You know, it's hard to leave a conversation for me when 
you know, one of your best friends or, or a family member, you leave the conversation on a disagreement and you're like, damn, I didn't get anywhere. And now there's like this weird, weird animosity. And like, like, I don't know. It's, it's just, that's been really difficult for me. To, Understood. Uh, so I, I was just, I was wondering if you, if you had an insight on that. I, my insight essentially is there's a very, there are very clear rights and wrongs in, in this fight, right? There are people that are being dehumanized. Uh, black people are being dehumanized. Latinos and immigrants are being de- dehumanized. Queer people are being dehumanized. Trans people are being dehumanized. Women are being dehumanized. Sure. I don't care who you are. If you dehumanize a human being or a group of human beings that don't, des- I mean, no one deserves to be dehumanized. If you dehumanize people, we cannot have a civil conversation. Sure. That's the beginning and end of it. I don't care if you're my mom. I don't care if you're my best friend. I don't care if you're my doctor. I, it just like, there has, there has to be a line drawn in the sand. And I really think that, you know, for me, like my humanization, my humanity is always called into question by somebody. If it's not because of the color of my skin, it's because of my sexual orientation. So I don't have the patience or the tolerance or the capacity to accept any viewpoint that makes me feel less than because I know that I'm a valuable person that should have the same rights as anybody else that lives and votes in this country. And the issue that a lot of, you know, particularly my, my white straight friends have is that, you know, when they go home for Thanksgiving dinner and they talk to, you know, racist uncle Ronnie or homophobic aunt Jean or whatever it is, there's the, I love this person and I can't Mm -hmm. really get into a disagreement with them because I love this person. But I think where real allyship and real activism comes into this is you got to be like, not you personally, and maybe you personally, but people in general have to be like, you know what, uh, racist Uncle Ronnie, like, you are not going to see me again. We are not going to have a conversation until you get religion on this shit. Like there have to be, there have to be consequences because otherwise they're just going to be like, Oh, well, you know, that's my liberal nephew. He's so cute. Funny. It becomes like an Archie Bunker kind of situation. And, and then they never change. And that's not to say that some people can't change in the, you know, in the course of a civil discourse, I'm very well aware that that can happen. But I think when people are dug into a certain extent, the only way that they're going to learn is, you know, quote unquote, tough love. Sure. You know, and look, I don't like, I don't like canceling people. I don't like asking other people to cancel people. Mm-hmm. But I do think that in situations like this, where like literal humanity is on, right. the, like people need to be canceled. Sure. You know, because it's like, like if you know me, and someone close to you is like, you know, black people, you know, says something derogatory about black people. Mm-hmm. It's like, oh, wait, my buddy Mike is black people. Like, he's not like that. You're, you know, then it becomes, they're not just talking about black people. They're talking about somebody that you have, you know, a, a real relationship with. For sure. Imagine what it's going to be like if one day... You're like, oh, 
you know, my black friend Mike is going to come over for dinner one day. Like, imagine what kind of situation that puts other people that you love in. For sure. You know, so it really is just, uh, you know, it's, it's, there's got to be an empathy response. And there also has to be like a hard line drawn in the sand in some sure. cases. If you can't get through to somebody, you know, like I have an uncle who, I have an uncle who is a Trump supporter, which to this day, every time I say it, like, I want to throw up. He's a Trump supporter and he's a homophobe. And I don't, I really don't care to see him again. Sure. Just kind of like, okay, like, I, I wouldn't say that I ever really like loved this person, but I liked this person. I enjoyed hanging around them. And I mean, I, you know, but I just don't have the desire to be around him anymore. Yeah. No, I know. I, I, I totally, I, 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 I totally get where you're coming from. And I think that is something worth considering. Like, I mean, I think so many people that grew up where I grew up, it's just been this way forever. And they have never had that moment of like, oh, wait, maybe it's different. Or their defenses are so built up that, you know, that automatic response, that automatic pushback is, is so ingrained. And it's like, I wonder if I just keep having these conversations and bring something different to the table each time. And, and work slowly and try to do it in a way that's constructive if we can eventually break that, that down. But yeah, it's, no, it's, it's, it's totally, it's totally, it's totally that, that line of like, damn, this person is so far gone that I should probably just stop associating with them. Like, why am I, why, why am I doing this? And kind of showing them that tough love and kind of telling them like, listen, you're, not just going to have me here all the time. I'm not, I'm not going to like just let this happen anymore. And, and so it's that fine line of, of leaving or, or pushing harder to hopefully break that. That's where I'm like, you know, that's, that's, I feel like, you know, right. Back and forth is within me. I feel like if, if people, if, if whoever these people are really value you and really respect you, they won't necessarily come around right right away, but they'll at least continue to entertain you. Sure. Like, and they'll, you know, it'll be a mutual back and forth, but there are going to be some people who are just never going to get it. And they're never going to take you seriously. Okay. And the people that don't take you seriously and will never take you seriously have to face consequences. You know, it's gotta be, you know, like I've used the excuse a lot of times or use the story. Like if you have kids, you're like, you're not seeing the grandkids until you change your mind. Like you got to put consequences out there and it sucks and it's really shitty, but also it's really shitty to be black on a regular basis. Mm-hmm. It's really shitty to have to deal with racists in the world. It's really shitty to have to do to deal with people who are, are misogynist or homophobic. Like every time I walk into the world, when I leave my house in the back of my head somewhere, I'm like, I could get into a confrontation with mm-hmm. anybody at any given time based on nothing but the color of my skin. Mm-hmm. You know, every time I go outside, if I'm outside and it's dark and I'm walking down the street by myself and I see a white woman walking down the street by herself, I will either let her walk in front of me or I will cross the street because I don't want to end up in a Karen situation. Mm-hmm. And I've been doing that for fucking decades. Mm-hmm. Like if I'm outside running early in the morning and I, a cop car drives by, I, you know, my my defenses are up because the cops are going to see just some random black dude running. You know, they don't know or don't necessarily care that I'm jogging for exercise. They're like, what's this nigga running from? Mm -hmm. So it's, it's, you know, 
there's all this stuff that really requires empathy on the part of someone who is not a minority to understand that we have sure. to go through just as a matter of course on a daily basis. Yeah, no, I mean, it, it's 100%, I mean, uh, 1 million percent a privilege that white people to have to, ch- that they get to choose when they want to have these discussions or, or think about things like this. I, I mean, it's, you're, you're 100% spot on there. Yeah. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, and, and you know, it's been an awakening for me too. Like I, you know, I feel like there's a part of me that's always been political, but having the courage to actually be vocally political and be mm-hmm. political in the workplace and be political with my friends. I mean, that's really only something that's come about in the last like seven, eight years, you know, as I've grown more confidence in myself as a person and as someone who not only has intelligence, but has like life experience to back the shit that he says up. Sure. No. And I, I mean, I'll be the first one to thank you for, for becoming that way. Cause I feel like, you know, you're, your guidance through a lot of things while we were working together definitely opened me up to, to a lot of, to a lot of stuff I wasn't thinking about previously. So, I mean, not to gas you up, you know, but that's, I mean, my head, my head can't get much bigger, Chris. So I don't think you have to worry about that. So, yeah, I mean, there, there is another thing I wanted to talk about and I I don't mean to like transition abruptly, but it does have to do with it. I'm Um, all about abrupt transitions. (laughs) You, I mean, not to guess you up again, but you, you know, you introduced me to mental health in a way that kind of made it something urgent, something that I identified with and something that I could care about and engage with, you know, and that's, that's led me to where I'm at now. But I kind of wanted to think about, I wanted to, I, I wanted to talk about how you feel like your, your identity has, has come up in therapy in terms of like how, how has your, you know, any, any number of your identities, you've mentioned, you mentioned your sexual identity, you've men- mentioned your racial identity, your ethnic identity, like, you know, how do you feel that any of those individual things or the intersection of those things has come up in therapy or has been handled in therapy? You know, like, are there good and bad examples of, of that, of how it's been handled well and poorly or you know, I know, I know that's a lot to ask. It is uh, a lot to ask. I mean, I've had, I've had black therapists. I've had white therapists. I've had Asian therapists. I've had uh, male therapists, women therapists, gay therapists, straight therapists. So I, I'm sorry. I'm feeling, I feel like I'm talking to the right guy then. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I, my current therapist is, you know, a straight Jewish white guy who I think has been one of my better therapists, one of my better doctors. And I think, I think he handles a lot of this stuff better than, I mean, if he didn't handle it better than my previous therapist, I would have left him a long time ago. I've been seeing him now for two years. You know, there's still stuff I sort of feel weird talking to him about and stuff that I don't think he totally gets, Mm -hmm. but he always gives me the impression that what he doesn't know he's willing to ask about, which is really important to me because I, I treasure dialogue and you know, I've had therapists before who were like, do this, do this, do this, and do this. And the do this is didn't really seem right to me. Mm. And with this, it's more of like a, a, a give and take kind of thing. You know, I, I've never felt uncomfortable really talking about racial stuff. 
And, you know, in most cases, my current therapist has been the person that's brought it up. And every once in a while, he's like, you sure you don't want a black therapist? And I'm like, look, you're good until I decide that you're not. Like, we're, you know, we're Gucci. Like, it's, it's cool. So, I, you know, with this particular therapist, when it comes up, I don't feel uncomfortable. With, pet, with past therapists, whether it, it has been my sexuality or my race or you know, sort of my evolving relationship with both those things. You know, when I feel uncomfortable about things, I'm really bad at... So this is a weird kind of conundrum. When I reach a point where I have decided to confront somebody, Mm -hmm. my knob is already turned all the way up to 11. Like, there's no gradual. It's like, Mike's nice. Mike's nice. Mike's nice. Mike just punched me in the face. Like it, it, it goes from zero to a hundred seemingly overnight, but I let stuff build and sure. sit until I hit a breaking point. And I'm trying to learn to not be that way and be a little bit more thoughtful and immediate as regards to confrontation. But with, with regard to my therapist, it's kind of been like, everything's cool. Everything's cool. Everything's cool. And then the next day an email saying, Hey, you know, I think I'm going to take some time off therapy for a while. Okay. So I have not really had a situation in which I have sat across from somebody and been like, you know what? I'm going to leave. The only time that happened was the therapist that I had right before I left Boston. It was like, hey, I'm moving away. If I could take you with me, I would. But, you know, because he is unquestionably the best therapist I've ever had. Mm. Um, But, you know, when it gets to the confrontation piece, Specifically in regards to, you know, a therapist situation or I feel as though my, I feel like my feelings regarding their treatment of, you know, my racial or sexual identity was unwarranted or uneducated or whatever. When that happens, I'm just kind of like, I don't know if I want to bring this up just because I guess I'm not totally confident in, in my perception yet. Okay. You know what I'm saying? Sure. Yeah. Yeah, I guess, I guess, you know, the reason, the reason I'm asking is just been trying to think about how a therapist, what a therapist can do to let someone of any sort of different cultural dimension than them feel comfortable and accepted and heard in, in the therapeutic environment. Like, is there anything, is there anything that, you know, that is there any quality in, in a good therapist that you feel kind of brings that out? I know it's a difficult question because like you said, it does kind of, it kind of builds in you and you kind of just hit this sudden moment of like, eh, this isn't working. I think there are two things. I think one is that the patient really needs to be upfront and honest with the therapist, with, you know, with the clinician sure. and, you know, ask questions and say, hey, I don't feel comfortable because of this. Or, you know, I don't think we're a good match because of this. I think that's the first part. The second part is a lot of people, when they start therapy, they don't necessarily realize that they may have to do some therapist shopping. And they may have to talk to a few different people to to get a good fit. Like, it's kind of like dating in a way. Sure. Where it's like the first person that you go on a date with isn't necessarily going to be the person that you're going to marry. Sure. Um, and for me, it's like I want to, you know, this is a quality that I would want in a friend who is another race, of a partner who is another race, 
of a doctor who's another race, I want to know that you're comfortable with people who are not like you. For sure. Like if you're a white person, I want at least some sense that you are comfortable around black people or, you know, queer people or, you know, whatever it is. Because that way, every moment that I spend with you is not a moment in which I'm educating you about something. Sure, sure. I don't necessarily mind having to be the educator regarding some things. Mm -hmm. I don't mind having to be the educator periodically, but I don't want a relationship of any kind where I'm constantly like, well, this is my experience and this is why it's different from yours. Right. You know, because one size doesn't fit all in, in any situation. And you, do you feel like you've been kind of used as that, as that, as that sort of source of education for a therapist before? Not directly. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I don't think it's been conscious or like premeditated, but I think it has turned out like that on a couple of occasions. Yeah. You know, I mean, that's, that's actually, I think one of the differences between going to a therapist in New York city versus going to a therapist in Boston, everybody that lives, I don't want to actually, I don't want to paint that broad stroke. Most people who live in New York City have regular experiences with people who are not like them. People, you know, Boston's a very monochromatic city. Sure. And particularly if you're in the suburbs of Boston, you're not going to see people who are not like you. So when someone who is, you know, an other within an other Mm -hmm. shows up, like, you don't know what the fuck to do with them. So... You know, it, it's, it's, it's easier here. It's easier in a diverse major city than it would be in a suburb or a rural area or, you know, a city, you know, a Boston or a Portland mm-hmm. or a city that is not really like an urban city. Like it's an urban city, but it's not a diverse urban city. Sure. It's, it's also crazy that you you feel like you've you've kind of developed this knack for speaking with like immediacy and kind of talking about things as they come up within the counseling environment. And like, you know, that's, it's almost like that's supposed to be the role of the therapist to, to do that. And the fact that you have, you know, you've, you've been to therapy for a number of years now, like I could imagine someone who's new to therapy, like, you know, someone who's seeing a therapist for the first time, when they don't know that or they're not aware of these type of things, like, you know, I feel like that could be a huge turnoff. Like, damn, I just have to, I now have to, like, I'm coming to therapy and now I have to teach this person about this or like, and I'm not going back. Absolutely. For sure. And that, that has been my experience in the past. I didn't know what to look out for when I started therapy. I was just like, I'm going to go in and whoever this person is, is going to change my life, Mm -hmm. you know? And when when that didn't happen, when the chemistry was off, I was kind of like, well, what's going on here? Is this the way it's supposed to be? Mm-hmm. And I didn't learn that it's not supposed to be that way until I got a therapist that I really clicked with. And then I was like, oh, well, when it's good, it's supposed to be like this. Mm-hmm. And the previous situations before were not good. So, you know, it's trial and error, unfortunately. For I mean, sure, when it comes yeah. to mental health, to, to have to deal with a trial and error situation kind of sucks. Yeah. You know, I, I'll, I'll, you know, tell the story. Like I'd quit therapy for a while. This was right before I started seeing my last therapist. I quit therapy for maybe like seven, eight months. And then a friend passed away and I was like, okay, I need to start seeing a therapist mm. again. And I saw this guy who was, and I was one of his first clients like out of school. 
Mm. And he asked me a very basic question about a lifestyle of mine that I was like, I've never had to explain this to a therapist before. And at that moment, at that exact moment, I was like, yeah, this dude is done. I can't, I Mm -hmm. can't, I can't give money. I can't give my money to a person who I have to start from zero, like on all levels with. And 12 years ago when I started therapy, I would have just kind of stuck with them. Sure. So you have to, it's trial and error. You have to kind of learn over the course of time, which again, sucks because it's your money. And it's also like your valuable time that you kind of waste. Sure. Trying to find somebody who's a good fit for you. And I can imagine that people that are of more of like the, the dominant racial or ethnic or sexual identities, like they probably run into that. It's probably not as much of an issue. You know what I mean? So I, I, I just, you know, I, I obviously, you know, I, I applaud your, you're talking about it because I'm sure people hearing this and hearing you talk about it and, you know, you're great at talking about it, but I know what people hear it. It's probably empowering. Right. I mean, most, most, most therapists are white. That's the bottom line. And it it, it is probably easier. Not probably it is easier for a white person to go to a black therapist because black people have to learn what white people are like to get by in this world. White people don't have to learn what it's like to be black to get by in this world. So it, it would be easier for a white person, I think, to see a black therapist than it would be for a black person to see a white therapist. Because in some cases, there's all of this educational, there's like a, you know, an educational addendum in addition to, you know, them wanting to get help that they sure. have to, that can be added on. Sure. Yeah, I feel like I imagine that it could be like such a, it could feel like such an effort to get, to get both of you on the same page before you even start working toward progress. Uh, Absolutely. You know. Absolutely. Wow. Yeah. Which is why I just encourage people to like step out of your comfort zone. You know, one thing I was going to say earlier when you were talking about like your neighborhood is that a lot of these people, people in general who grow up particularly in like suburban or rural areas Mm -hmm. don't leave the area. Mm -hmm. Like they don't, you know, they don't, they don't move out of the neighborhood they don't have friends of other cultures. They don't have family members that have married into different cultures. Like they don't know any black people. They don't know any Latinx people. They don't know any immigrants. They don't know any gay people. They don't know, you know, trans people. And the thing that eradicates prejudice the most is exposure. Like if you meet, if you had never met a black person before and you met me and you liked me because I'm a black person, your view of black people has now changed. Sure. You know, and I remember like, you know, another story, like when I was in high school, I told you my high school was primarily Asian. And I remember this one kid who I was buddies with the entire four years of high school. You keep this in my, in Brooklyn Tech, you keep the same homeroom all four years. And in my yearbook, I remember he wrote, because of you, I have grown to appreciate black people. Because, you know, this was a kid whose parents were immigrant. He was an immigrant. And they ran like a fruit store or a vegetable store or something like that. And, you know, because of the language barrier and the cultural barrier, like there were, there was some animosity there. Sure. And to experience someone who was willing to see them as a person 
you know, and vice versa, it will change, you know, it can change opinions. Like one, you know, people are always like, what can I do as one person, you know? And like, I'm not, it would be nice if I had the power to change the world. I don't, and I don't pretend I do. But if I can get one person to change the way that they feel about something important, whether it's race, whether it's about mental health, whether it's about sexuality, whatever it is, then, you know, I, I did a job. I did, I did a good job somewhere because again, like exposure is is something that can break, you know, break prejudice apart. For sure. So I, you know, again, to make, you know, to, to make my initial, what was supposed to be my initial point if you don't step out of your suburban white comfort zone, mm-hmm. I, I get that there, well, it's called a comfort zone for a reason. It's comfortable for people, but you know, y- people hold on to those prejudices because they never jump out of their area. They never sure. get out of their silo mm-hmm. and the people, you know, the family members and the friends that do venture out of that silo, when they go back, they really need to kind of preach the, you know, preach the gospel of diversity and privilege and empathy and and what other people go through based on, you know, their genetic makeup, Mm -hmm. you know, and how things are not, you know, things are not even, you know, how things are not fair, how there is all of this like structural racism, sexism, uh, homophobia, you know, ableism, whatever in place. Absolutely. You have the power, Chris. <laughs> Take it. Take the power. <laughs> no, I no. I mean, I'm now realizing it. I did not mean for it to be this way. And no. I, I, I'm turning into your. You know, I don't want you to be. You know, feel like a, a source of education for me primarily. I, <laughs> I mean, I, I, I don't. I, I, you know, there are some people, rightfully, who are not willing to educate anybody because mm-hmm. it's a lot of work. But I see the value in having people, people I care about, mm-hmm. like if you're a stranger, I don't give a fuck about you. But if you're somebody that's already in my circle, I think there's value in having these conversations Sure. because, you know, if it pushes a couple of buttons in your head and you go back to your life with a perspective that now includes people that are not like you, you're going to project that forward. And it's going to, you know, it's going to affect at least one other person in your circumference and that person is going to affect somebody else. And that's how change happens. Sure. One person affecting one person, affecting two people affecting, you know, so on and so forth. Well, I, I mean, I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. Oh, Chris, um, I appreciate you, sir. <laughs> no, um, no, I'm mean, I sure. And I'm very, and I'm very, very proud of you. And, and I, I think that you, are going to be an amazing therapist. You are a, a very empathetic, kind person. And I think that that is sorely needed. So, you know, I, I think you're going you're gonna to not to put any pressure on you or anything. No, actually, I mean, the only reason I actually wanted to come on the podcast was for you to say nice things about me. So I'm glad finally. And therein lies the secret. Chris only wanted to get on the podcast so I could say nice things about him. No, I'm kidding. Uh, Chris is a wonderful guy, and I do think that he's going to make an amazing therapist. Um, I thank him for appearing on the podcast and uh, hope he does well in his uh, future pursuits. 
and uh, I'll keep you posted. Also, if you're interested, uh, Chris owns Good Friend Records. If you want to check his music out, you can find them on Twitter, at GoodFriendRex, G-O-O-D-F-R-I-E-N-D-R-E-C-S. And speaking of social media, you can, of course, find Detoxicity on all major social media platforms, maybe not TikTok, uh, <laughs> but um, I can be reached via facebook.com slash detoxpod. I'm on Twitter at tismikejoseph. I'm on Instagram at itsmikejoseph. I can be emailed at detoxpod at gmail.com. This is really important to me. If you would like to be on the show, because I know some people are skittish, um, not sure what they're signing up for, just hit me up with an email and we can talk through it and get you into a situation where you feel comfortable being on the show. Um, if you know somebody who would be a really good fit for it, also let me know. I'm willing to reach out and talk to people. Um, you know, we do have a pretty, pretty prodigious backlog of episodes right now, but I don't see this ending anytime soon. We're only 27 shows in, um, and I hope that there are at least 270 to go. So keep feeding me people. Oh, no, not feeding me people. That sounds weird. Keep suggesting people to me to be on the show. That that works a little bit better. Um, as always, I try to promote a specific charity at the end of every show. Uh, between now and the first week in November, I just have to constantly um, reach out regarding uh, Democratic charities Um Anything blue-related, uh, there are a bunch of Senate races going on right now. Donate to candidates. Even if they're not where you live, look for progressive candidates and donate to their campaigns. I know Maine, uh, there is a, uh, a tight Senate race happening, um, so make sure you donate there. Donate to Joe Biden and uh, Kamala Harris. Uh, don't, just donate wherever you can. I mean, these folks need money. Lots of folks need money. Um, so if you have anything to spare... Maybe I, I'm not going to suggest that you go without something to give to someone else. But, uh, you know, if you do have money to spare, I, I really hope that you use it to donate to progressive charities. Um, because if we don't, if the country doesn't turn uh, in November, we are headed down a very dark road. And I don't want to go there. If you listen to this podcast, I'm pretty sure you don't want to go there. So let's make sure that that does not happen. As always, I wish you continued health and safety. Uh, my name is Mike Joseph. Thank you for supporting and listening to this very special episode of Detoxicity. Uh, I will talk to you soon. Peace. Peace.